Good morning. The title of the sermon is, Are We There Yet? Are we there yet? This is a famous passage of scripture we have before us this morning, a famous passage of prophetic Old Testament scripture. If you've ever been to a prophecy conference, if you've ever uh, seen prophecy conferences hosted at a number of churches, uh, inevitably Daniel 9 is at the center or a centerpiece of those. If you've ever seen books with charts on them, it all comes, many of those books come right from here the 70th weeks of Daniel. You're going to want to keep your Bible open or turn your Bible on, turn off ESPM in the game, right? Uh, Get your Bible on your phone and and, or on your in your book form and go to, you're going to want to keep it open to 9, 24 to 27 throughout the duration of our time together. 9, 24 to 27, that's where we are going to be. The context, Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen. And Daniel senses the end of exile is near. He is here standing in the next kingdom, the next beast. And he is reading from Jeremiah, the prophet, chapters 25 and 29. And he senses what Jeremiah said, the exile will last 70 years before they can return. And he knows that time is near. He does the math. He remembers the young Daniel from Daniel chapter 1. And he goes, time's almost up. Time's, it's almost up, and so he sets to pray in accordance with Leviticus 25 and the covenant agreements between Yahweh and the people of God, and he confesses their failures. He calls on Yahweh, my God. This is the only time Daniel invokes the covenant name of God in the entire book is in chapter 9, the only time he says, Lord, your Bible may translate it capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And he invokes covenant status, asks God to forgive them, to restore them, and to keep the covenant for the glory of his name. That's where we were last week. And what an incredible prayer that is. And that pen that I put, we will pick up at the very end of Daniel in a separate sermon. Today we will get to the 70 weeks. So Daniel prays this incredible corporate prayer, and he gets an Amazon Prime two-hour response to this prayer. Well, actually, while he's praying, the answer comes in the form of an angel, Gabriel. Wouldn't you wish God would answer your prayers like that? Right there, while I'm praying them, except the answer Daniel gets is not the answer he had expected. And so let's pray and get to the text. Father in heaven, in John 5, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, and they testify to me. Father, may we hear that testimony from your scripture this morning, that there is life eternal in Christ Jesus. Would you help us to see this testimony, to embrace it by faith, and to forsake all other allegiances. I lift up Waiehu Community Church, our sister church plant, this morning on their second anniversary. Father, may you bless them in their work, spur them on, keep them for the glory of your name as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to be moving with lightning speed. We have a lot of ground to cover. That's why I will have slides for you uh, to help you keep up both visually and audibly so you can kind of try and keep pace because we're going to we're going to jam. Here's the summary. Here's the summary of the passage. In response to Daniel's prayer for restoration, God answers that 77s remain until the ultimate jubilee and establishment of the kingdom of God by the Messiah. Remember, Daniel's praying 70 years. He senses the end. God's response, there remain 70 sevens until the ultimate jubilee and the establishment of the kingdom of God in accordance with Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 by the Messiah. Number one, we have three points. Number one, there's really like 10 points, but it's hard for you to remember that, so three will be a nice Trinitarian number. Number one, the prophetic vision. Number one, the prophetic vision. Number two, the final jubilee. And number three, the true temple. You can see them all there. Number one, the prophetic vision. Let's forget the Super Bowl this morning, okay? 
forget it. Let's, we have the super prophecy and the super supper before us, which is better than any Super Bowl. Amen? Okay, let's get to this because it truly is incredible. Let me say first, there are a ton of interpretive issues in this passage. Some of them are macro level, some of them are micro level and granular, even down to words and colons and semicolons and commas and periods and where is the placement of them. If you read different translations, some of them differ from one another. The reason for that, anytime you ever see that in the Bible, is that means underneath the English there is a complex construction of the original languages that all the translators are trying to wrestle with. And so uh, I encourage you, read through those. We won't be able to get to all of them. I'm going to ask you to think hard with me this morning, okay? You got to put your thinking caps on this morning. Sometimes we do a little bit lighter sermons mentally, and then sometimes we just get to work and your brain's going to get hot like your computer does, all right? So Focus with me, stay with me, do what you got to do to keep up. Uh, By all means, I will do my best to keep you plugged in with various helps on the screen. All right. Here's what I can say by way of uh, addressing a few things at the front end, preloading. No matter what direction you take all those little hard details, right, there's variations of when did the decree, what decree was it, was it Xerxes, Artaxerxes, was it uh, Cyrus, and uh, what about this word, that word, how, how do you take this clause, and no, no matter which detail or direction you go with those details, what I have found is most of them coalesce at the same point. Most of them come together at, and land on the same runway, all right? They might go this way, or, or they might take the, this detail that way, but most of them come together and land very, very close. And so if you want to split hairs over some of those things, that, that's okay, but just know the end result is they all terminate at the same point. Now, you might say, well, why does it really even matter then? That's a fair question, because what matters out of that is, one, how you interpret the Bible, and then where the point of emphasis is in the daily life of the believer. That's why it starts to matter where the point of emphasis becomes, and that is connected to many other passages. Also, this is a pivotal passage for the dispensational understanding of the end times. This is a crucial, this is a pillar passage for that entire scheme, which I will lay out a little bit later if you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, let me just say it this way. If you've ever think of like the Antichrist and the rapture and people are just going to disappear and, and then seven years tribulation and Israel and Armageddon and all that kind of stuff. If you've ever even thought about the end times in, in that way, that's dispensationalism. That, that is dispensationalism. Uh, oftentimes we don't know the term for it, but that is that school of thought. This is a pivotal passage for that system, such that if this passage doesn't support its timeline, the whole thing crumbles. The whole thing crumbles. Uh, And and I will just say, uh, I don't believe it does support that school of thought. I do want to say, though, I do want to say, by way of being encouraging, that if we're honest, if I'm honest intellectually, and all the other disagreeing points wherever you're at on this, if we are honest, there's a lot of overlap as well. There's a ton of overlap. Almost everyone admits that this points to the ministry of Jesus somehow. All of them do. All of you say, this points to Jesus. Amen. Everyone has to account for the very long gap between the first and second coming of Jesus. Everybody has to account for that, myself included. Uh, uh, A dispensationalist might put it between the 69th and 70th week. Somebody else might put it after the 70th week. Some people might put it somewhere else. But everybody's just trying to account for that gap between the first and second coming of Christ, if we're honest. And all you're trying to see is, or what you're seeing is the varying schools of thought try to fit it together. And, And I'll just say there are many studied and godly people in all of these perspectives that I would stand hand in hand with, without a doubt, for the sake of the gospel and call them brothers in the Lord or sisters in the Lord. And so these are things we don't want to we we want to be able to differ with people without demonizing people. You hear what I'm saying? Like we want to differ with them without demonizing them or casting them down as as less godly than just because you don't see things the way I see things. So so I try to be really careful to do that and yet at the same time present an alternative approach. 
All right, so without further ado, let's tackle this, all right? It's going to feel like National Treasure. Anybody ever see that movie, National Treasure? Nicolas Cage, yeah? It's going to feel like you're on a treasure hunt through the scriptures, trying to track down all these references and seeing what God has for us. Verse 24, 77s are decreed, 77s are decreed for your people in the holy city, God tells Daniel in the sanctuary. Now, where does that come from? 77s. What's up with that number? It's enigmatic. It's mysterious. To understand this, we need to ask first this question, why was Israel exiled for 70 years anyways? Was that an arbitrary number? Could it have been 50? Could it have been 100? Could it have been 60 or 55? Why, why 70? Why would Jeremiah say 70 years of exile? Is that random? Beloved, God is never random. So we have to ask, where does 70 come from? Then it comes, our first stop is from 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 20 to 21. Ooh, that looks about as confusing as I'm sure my sermon is going to be. All right, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Now, in your Bibles, the last book of the Old Testament is what? Malachi. In the ancient Hebrew Bibles, the last book of the Old Testament is not Malachi, it's Chronicles, Second Chronicles. In the ancient Hebrew Bible, and imagine that, it leaves ringing in our ear the exile to Babylon and the return and the awaiting of a true king who would go up and rebuild the temple fascinating. I don't have time to tease that thread out this morning, but just know it is worth teasing out. I just don't have time to. Second Corinthians, uh, sorry, Second Chronicles 36, 20 to 21 says this. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, verse 21 underlined, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, there it is, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the day that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So why was it 70 years? Well, there's some sort of connection here with the 70 years in exile and the Sabbath cycles for the land, for the promised land. There's a connection here. Now you ask the next question, what on earth is a Sabbath cycle. What is a Sabbath cycle? That's a good question. For that, we have to go back further. Leviticus chapter 25. Isn't that your favorite book of the Bible? Right? You come to your Bible reading plan, Genesis, yes. Exodus, yes. I can't wait for Leviticus, right? But you're about to see how important this book truly is. Now, Leviticus 25 and 26, I am not going to go through uh, and read it all, but 25 verses 1 through 4, uh, the second part, the Jubilee, would be in chapter 25, verse 8 through 12, and then we would see chapter 26, the sevenfold punishment of exile while the land enjoys its Sabbath. Now, let me tell you about this, the Sabbath year, here's what was to happen. You remember the commandments, you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, okay? You shall remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Not only did God want his people to rest one day in seven, he also wanted the land to rest. And so they were to work the land for six years, sowing, reaping, pruning, harvesting. They were to work the land for six years, and on the seventh year, they were to give the land a rest, it was to rest. They were not to work the land. So that set up a cycle of Sabbaths. Six years work, one year rest. You see, it's up there. What's, how long is a total cycle? Seven. Now there's this thing called the year of Jubilee. Again, you could read about it all later. Leviticus chapter 25, that's your reference. Now there's this year of Jubilee you would have seven cycles of seven years. Who's good at math? What's seven times seven? 49. On the 49th year, that kicked off on the Day of Atonement, the year of Jubilee, the 50th year. The year of Jubilee is a huge deal if you're a Jew. It is the time when all debts are released, paid, canceled, if you were a slave because you were somehow fallen into debt or now you're like an indentured servant type setup, you go free. 
If you had to sell your land to pay your debts and all that stuff, you get your land back. That sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? That is huge. It is liberation. It is proclamation of freedom to the people of God. The jubilee was massive. You would maybe experience one or two in your lifetime tops if you were lucky, if it landed when you were younger, and if you even remembered it to be the case. But you would experience maybe one truly in your lifetime. This was a really big deal, the year of jubilee. So we could say seven sevens is a jubilee cycle. We have our Sabbath cycle, seven years, and then seven sevens is our jubilee. And that actually comes, that's where that whole weeks of years, if you're wondering, how do they get 70 years and then 70 weeks? It says 70 weeks in your, tra- in your translation, but literally under the Hebrew, it says 70 sevens in Daniel 9, 24. 70 sevens. It doesn't say weeks. It says 70 sevens. But that comes, if you're wondering, how do we get weeks to years and why, why do our Bibles translate it that way? It comes from Leviticus 25, verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years seven times seven, and it's in direct reference to the year of Jubilee. And then we have the punishment for disobedience in Leviticus 26. He says, I myself, if you disobey me, if you turn from me, he says it several times in Leviticus 26, if you turn from me, here it is, the consequence of disobedience, the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate, while you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. As long as it's desolate, it shall have rest. The rest that it did not have on your Sabbath when you were dwelling in it. Now that's way before. I mean, this is long time before they ever go to exile. He also says that he would discipline them sevenfold for their sins. Okay, so now let's put it together. Jeremiah prophesied how many years in exile? 70. Chronicles said it was for the land to enjoy its Sabbath for how many years? 70 years. We saw the Sabbath cycle in Leviticus 25 to 26. Now let me ask you to do math. Who likes word problems? There's a word problem up here on the screen. And the answer comes with it. I'm not going to stress you out too much this morning. How many years total? How many years total? Did Israel ignore God's commands for the land to Sabbath in order to accumulate 70 years in exile? Answer, 490 years. Or if you put that another way, 70 sevens. So Israel disobeyed God and his command for Sabbath cycles for the land for 70 sevens. Now, let me tell you something here. For 490 years, you think, what's the big deal? That is a symptom of Israel's faithlessness. And I want you to think, did they get this punishment their first time they neglected it? No. It went by without anything. And if you're Israel, you're thinking, oh, maybe this isn't that big of a command after all. Nothing happened, beloved. God is true to his word. Just because we sin and we don't see the immediate consequence doesn't mean God will not exact a toll. Doesn't mean there won't be a consequence. 490 years they disobeyed God's command. Now, with all of that in the backdrop, we can come to Daniel 9, 24 to 27. How long is decreed? Seventy sevens. Now, your Bible may, again, say 70 weeks, but again, underneath that is the term sevens. Seventy sevens. And that's exactly how Daniel would have understood it. He would have understood it in precisely Levitical terms, jubilees, Sabbath cycles, seventy sevens. We know this especially because Daniel quoted Leviticus 25 in his prayer. Leviticus 25 and 26 was quoted in his prayer that we just saw. Now keep this in mind. This is crazy, right? This is breathtaking news for Daniel. What's he's praying for, right? 70 years is up. 
Jeremiah, the end of exile is over. God, please, God, forgive our sins. Keep your covenant promises. And God answers his prayer. In essence, this is what God says. I will keep my covenant, Daniel. I will. But let me remind you, I promised sevenfold punishment for your sins. You just completed 70 years, and that will be repeated seven more times until the final return. Seventy sevens. That's breathtaking if you're Daniel. It's breathtaking. What? And it's also full of hope. It's also full of hope. So that's number one, the prophetic vision. Number two, let's keep moving into the text, the final jubilee. So, 77s are decreed for the people in the holy city. In other words, you disobeyed for 490 years to get into this mess, and it will take another 490 years to undo it. Oddly enough, Chronicles follows that exact timeline, 490 years from the time of the kings until exile. It follows that exactly to the T. 77s, or 490 years, also encompasses what we know as 10 jubilees. Ooh, you hear that number? 10? That's another number of fullness and completeness, isn't it? The 10 commandments, the 10 plagues of Egypt. 10 is another number that God often uses to symbolize fullness or completeness. It's the number of jubilees. And so on that last cycle of seven, the final jubilee, after 10 jubilee cycles, the final jubilee of God will be ushered in more on that in a moment. In this jubilee, he says six things will happen. They're on the screen for you. There are three negative and three positive. Six things are going to happen. Number one, to end the rebellion. To end the rebellion, to do away with sin, to atone for guilt and iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up prophetic vision, and to anoint the most holy. Now, if you have, depending on how your Bible translators address this in your text, that word place will either not be there at all, or it'll be in italics, because it's not there in the original. That is a fascinating interpretive issue. Again, we don't have time to deal with, but to anoint the most holy. What, is it a person? Is it a place? What is it? Or is it a person in whom those two things come together? Interesting, right? But this is what's going to happen at that final jubilee, and that's exactly what it sounds like. So 77s, until the final jubilee. Now, remember, what was Israel's greatest problem? Was it to get out of Babylon? That's what they wanted. <laughs> but was that their greatest problem, to get out of Babylon? No, that was not their greatest problem. If you recall, their greatest need was to get Babylon out of them. Their own sin caused all of this. Their disobedience, their rebellion, their transgressions, their covenant unfaithfulness is what got them into this in the first place, not Babylon. Beloved, we so desperately, this is all of us, we so desperately want to blame circumstances for our disobedience, political parties, or others around us. We want to blame others for our failures. If you would have done blank, I wouldn't be doing this. If they would do this, I wouldn't, or here's how we do it. You make me so mad. You see that? Who did I just blame for me being mad? You. You make me so mad. We so desperately want to blame others for what's happening right in here. But the scriptures, every time, the law of God is like a mirror, and it puts responsibility squarely on us. The Lord loves us too much. He loves his people too much to let them play the blame game. Their greatest problem was not Babylon outside. It was Babylon inside. And God says, it will take 77s to deal with their greatest need, to put away their sin, to end their transgression, to atone for their iniquity, and in the process, he would usher in everlasting righteousness. Now, check this out. Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. Isaiah 61, 
verse 1 and 2. Here's Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed, there's Messiah, anoint, right? The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Now, remember what, what this is referring to. Think about what we were just talking about. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is this referring to? Jubilee. It's referring to, this is jubilee. Even your Bible probably has a little cross-reference right back to Leviticus 25 in it. This is jubilee. This anointed one has the Spirit of God on him and is sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jubilee's here. Does that sound familiar? Does that passage of Scripture sound familiar? It should. Because in the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke, New Testament, fast forward, Luke chapter 4, Jesus walks into a synagogue. This is stunning. He walks into a synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he gets the scroll of Isaiah. He, he unscrolls it to Isaiah 61, and he reads it. And then he says something that would make their jaws drop. And Jesus says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus basically says, that's me. I'm here. Check. There it is. All right. Jubilee. Freedom. Right? That's it. Thank you, Paula, for rescuing me and bringing in liberty. Or you guys were thinking you were free. Yes. Sermon's over. Right? Liberty. No. Bad. Bad people. No. It's the year of Jubilee. It's the year of Jubilee, and Jesus is referring to it. Now Daniel sees his 77s. Okay? Let's go back to Daniel 9. 77s. What we find in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, is that these 77s, again, how many years would this be if we're taking it literally? 490, okay? Or these weeks, how your Bible puts it, these 77s are broken up into three units. This is where the ESV actually takes a little bit different than everybody else, which is really confusing. The ESV differs from the King James, from the NIV, the New American Standard, all these otherwise reputable translations, and the ESV actually takes a little bit differently in how they translate it, and I think they miss it, and they actually confuse it, which is not normally the case for the ESV, but we can show grace to uh, our translators. Uh, I encourage you to look at a side-by-side -side of those later, and you will see exactly what I mean, particularly in verse 25, but the 77s are broken up into three basic units. There's the first group of seven, seven sevens. Now, how many, again, is a seven sevens? 49 years or weeks. And in that time, the temple is rebuilt. In that time, the decree goes out and the temple is rebuilt under Persian rule. And then the second unit is 62 sevens, or 62 weeks, your Bible may say. In that time, things are being rebuilt, strengthened, developed, and in distressing times. And that's exactly what you read about in Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, is that there is all kind of turmoil and distress and opposition. And even if we were to fast forward, as we mentioned in Daniel 8, Antiochus Epiphanes, there is distressing times awaiting the people of Israel during those 62 sevens. So that's the second unit. So now we have 62 plus seven what does that give us? 69 weeks. 69 weeks pass until the Messiah, the Prince. Now, that's important. Verse 25 and how it says that. Look at your text. 
Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of, and here it is, to the coming of an anointed one. Okay, that's Messiah in the Hebrew, to the coming of Messiah, a prince. Now, are those two separate people or is it further explaining Messiah? In other words, is it saying Messiah and a prince or Messiah the prince? ESV does get this portion right. It is one and the same person. That word Messiah and that word prince refer to the same person. Two different words referring to the same person. Now this is important because those words are going to come up again and one school of thought refers them to different people later. But we're saying right now in verse 25, it refers to the same person person, the anointed one who is the prince or a leader or a ruler. So 69 weeks pass until the Messiah. And then there's the final seven, the 70th week of Daniel. So we got 69 weeks and then 70. And verse 26a says this, verse 26a says this, right there about the middle, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Or an alternate translation there for have nothing is, an anointed one shall be cut off, but not for himself. It's another way you could translate that. But not for himself. Now, here's another interpretive issue. I'm going to describe that dispensational belief now and how they take verses 26 and 27, okay? After the 62 weeks, so we're week 69, The dispensational understanding says this, that there is a 2,000-plus-year gap between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel, in which we, they would say, are living in that gap. So, they read it like this. And after, 26, and after the 69 weeks, but before the 70th week begins, the Messiah is cut off. Jesus dies, and because Israel rejected their king, that God paused the time clock for Israel, or Daniel 70 weeks, and that kicked off this mysterious age known as the time of the Gentiles. They would say that's where we are living right now. And when that time is over, how will we know when it's over? Because the secret rapture of the church will occur and will end that time, which nobody knows. When that time is over, God will take the church out of the world. And then verse 26b, God restarts the time clock, the 70th week of Daniel. Then the people of the prince who is to come, 26b, and they believe this prince, remember I said Messiah the prince, they believe this prince refers to a different person, a different reference, the Antichrist, the people of the prince who is to come, his people come and destroy the city. They would readily acknowledge that was Titus and the Romans and year 80, 70, and then verse 27, because remember, the people of the prince, not the prince himself who comes. They would say verse 27 then, and he refers, he shall make a strong covenant, that that he there in 27 refers to the Antichrist and his arrival and his making of a covenant that lasts seven years long with the people of Israel. And we know, as they say, that covenant will be broken about halfway through. Now, and then on and on it goes, that the the third temple will be destroyed, or the the rebuilt temple in the future would then be destroyed, God comes, saves the day, the second coming of Christ happens, uh, he sets up his millennial kingdom on the earth, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I just kind of outlined in an overview, a dispensational understanding of which I was brought up in, that was my formal training, that's what I lived in and breathed in all of my life. Uh, until, I don't know, a couple years. Now, why would I depart from that? First, there are a number of problems with that view. Uh, One, I just don't think the text supports it. So I'm going to outline a different alternative approach. Again, many of my professors are godly people, very smart, very studied, uh, and, and I love them dearly, but I just think there's a number of problems with the text. I think you have to approach the text preloaded with suppositions to make it say that. You hear what I'm saying? Like, I think you have to come to it and, and already have this, this understanding of how this is going to play out in order to read the text like that and get that there. 
Uh, now, I'm going to give you a different approach uh, that I think is more consistent with the passage and the whole Testament as a whole. Uh, and I'll present it to you, and you can do it, take it, leave it, do whatever you want with it, okay? So here's the alternative approach. We have the first unit. How many units do we have? Three units of sevens, right? The first unit of seven is the decree to rebuild the temple. Now, there's debate. Is this symbolic or is it literal? I could see either or working out, to be fair. I think there's arguments to be made for both. If you had to peg me down on a literal time, because Daniel's already used seven uh, metaphorically, even in his historical narrative portions, now we're in apocalyptic. Again, I think there's a good argument to be made that he's not trying to be tied to chronology and precise dates. That's a good argument. However, if you had to say, no, it is history, I would peg that date down, that decree to Artaxerxes, again, we're not going to go into all that right now, Artaxerxes decree in 457 BC. Now, again, I'm not going to hold that with a closed hand, and I get there's lots of other things that go into that. Either way, both approaches lead you to Jesus with incredible precision. If you use 457 BC as your starting point, you fast forward 483 years, again, that's those 69 sevens, you land at the year, those of you who are good with math, A.D. 26 to 33, or 27 to 34. Who was crucified in that time? Jesus. And again, no matter how you account for the details, everybody gets there. This points to Jesus and his being cut off. The second unit the second unit, 62 sevens, we see that that city continues to grow and develop, so that'll take you to week 69, verse 26a, verse 26a, and this is my alternative reading now to how they would understand this. Remember, they see after the 69th week, but before the 70th. That's how they see that gap there. I'm going to ask you this, if you have now 69 weeks have passed, verse 26a, after 62 weeks, what, what week does that put us in if you're just reading the text naturally? You don't come to it with preloaded assumptions. What week do you immediately think we're in? The 70th. This is now the start. After the 69 weeks, you're in the 70th, the last seven. Again, I would say there's no mention of a gap here in the text. The natural re reading would lead you to believe after the 69th week, you are there in the 70th week. Now you ask questions, though. But what about this prince who is to come? What about his people who destroy the city and the sanctuary? What about this person who makes a strong covenant? Isn't that the Antichrist? I would suggest to you that the prince who is to come and the person who makes a strong covenant, that the context points to the prince to come being Christ, the Messiah, not Antichrist. Now, in terms of like different interpretive approaches, you don't get at further ends of the spectrum, right? It's not like shades of meaning there. It's like, oh, that's polar opposites. I'm going to say this is referring to Christ for three reasons that I will give you this morning. Number one, we see the context of chapter nine. Remember in last week, I drew your attention to the covenant, God's covenant. He's invoking God's covenant name, the law of Moses, God's covenant faithfulness, his covenant love. He's referring to the covenant of God with his people. So when we see the one who makes a strong covenant, what covenant is he referring to? Is that a new covenant? No, God is making good on all of his promises to the people of Israel before the one to come, he is going to make a strong covenant with the people and put an end to sacrifices halfway through the week. <gasps> How long was Jesus' ministry? Public ministry. About three and a half years. His public ministry. About three and a half years. So the first one would be the context of the chapter, the covenantal context of the chapter. It points to this covenant being made by the Messiah, God bringing good on all of his promises, which is exactly what Daniel's praying. God, fulfill your covenant. Remember us for the glory of your name. And God's answer, I will. I'm going to make good on my promise after 77. Number two, reason number two, the immediate context. There are no reasons contextually within Daniel 25 and 26 or 27 to identify the first Messiah prince mentioned in verse 25 as different 
than the second one mentioned, Messiah or Prince, in verse 26 and 27. They're the same Hebrew words. There's no reason to say a shift occurred. Oh, this is a new person being introduced. You have to, again, come to the text with a preloaded assumption to see that. It's the same exact word, Messiah, Prince, Messiah, Prince, the Prince of the people who is to come. I'd suggest that refers to the same person, Jesus, the ruler of God's people. So consistency of interpretation supports that these terms refer to the same person in each verse. Third reason has to do with Hebrew literary parallelism. Told you I was going to make you work this morning. I'm true to my word. <laughs> Hebrew literary parallelism supports this reading. Up here on the screen, uh, it should be up here in a minute. Verses 25 to 27 should not be read in a linear, linear manner. Should not be led, read in a linear manner. Ancient Hebrews would not have read it from start to finish in that type of linear understanding. What you would have had is verse 24 and 25 gives you this overview of the 70 weeks, the decree. And then verse 26 and 27, zoom in on the point of emphasis, the final climactic seven, the last period. They zoom in and explain it and expand on it. And so the verse you have isn't uh, A, B, C, D in a linear manner. It's A, B, A, B. That's how you would read it, in a parallel manner. Now, I put this up on the slides so you can see it. And I, I aligned the parallels. 26A would be parallel with 27A. And we'll read 27, uh, 26B and 27B in a minute. But look at them when you read them parallel. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Now, I'm going to say the parallel expands and explains that. Verse 27. And he, again, referring to Messiah, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Is that not exactly what Jesus did as the true Lamb of God? He took away the sins of the world. The book of Hebrews says there remains no more need for animal sacrifices. They're done. Now go to the next parallel. Here's your B parallels lined up, 26B. And the people of the prince who is to come... No, they're the people, not the prince, the people of the prince, who is to come, I'm still arguing that prince is Messiah, who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now it's going to expand and explain, verse 27b, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Whew. So, if that's Christ, how does that work out? So I'm saying that's Jesus. How does that continue to play out? Leads us to our third and final point, point number three, the true temple. The true temple. Daniel 9 is a beautiful messianic prophecy through and through. One of the true messianic prophecies that you couldn't really argue there's another reference in a contemporary context. It truly does point forward to in a futuristic prediction of the Messiah who is to come. Verse 26, I said, it's not the prince who destroys the city and the sanctuary. It says the people of the prince destroy the city and the sanctuary. It says in the parallel passage, verse 27b, that it's Messiah who puts an end to sacrifice and offering for half the week or on the half of the week. And then on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. Now, to be on the wing of something, to come on the wing of something, we might say is like riding on your tailcoats, to come on the wing is in association with, in relation to. And so on the wing of abominations come one who makes desolate. Now, what, what's happening with all this? I'll, I'll spare you the, the longer details. Essentially, ancient his, Jewish historian Josephus fills in the details for us. And the details are not as we would have liked them to be. Josephus tells us that long before Rome ever came in and totally decimated the temple structure, 
the Jews themselves engaged in an intense civil war, actually sacked, burned, and did a ton of damage in the temple. The Romans came to a temple already sacked. You can read all about that in the accounts of Josephus. And then the Romans come in to a temple already desecrated, and they go further and remove every single stone in the temple in order to get the gold in the temple, and thereby completing its destruction, fulfilling the words of Jesus on the Olivet Discourse and all of his apocalyptic predictions of judgment on that generation. But the abominations themselves were committed by Israel. You say, what? Israel, the people of the prince, committed the abominations. How? How, you say? Get this. The moment that Jesus, who identified himself as the true temple, you remember John chapter 2, 2, 18? Jesus refers to the temple of his body, the true temple. The moment that Jesus, the true temple, the true Lamb of God, when he actually died and atoned for sins, when he finished transgression by offering up himself from that moment on, every single sacrifice offered in the temple was an abomination to God through the work of Christ. Every single one was an abomination. It was a rejection. It was a sign of the utter rebellion of the people of Israel in rejecting not only the prophets, but the Son himself. And because of the constant rebellion of Israel against God, in Daniel's day, he used Babylon as his agent of judgment to destroy the temple. In Jesus' day, it would be Rome as his agent of judgment to destroy the temple after they rejected their Messiah in the year AD 70. So, what is Daniel 9 about? It is all about the work of the Messiah, the true leader who will come and make a strong covenant and put an end to sin. And it's an incredible messianic prophecy. And there's still so much to say, and time is so short. We didn't even get to talk about Isaiah, the two stages of exile return. We didn't get to revisit Chronicles or the Sabbath themes at play here. But let's end it by applying it briefly and bringing it home. Messiah was cut off. Remember that alternate translation I suggested, but not for himself. He would come and he would be cut off, but not for himself. Have you ever had somebody take the fall for you? Have you ever had somebody get the punishment you deserve for an act? I have. And it is a heavy, heavy, weighty feeling that is at once shocking and also altogether joyful. As you realize somebody is standing in my place. Messiah was cut off for us. He was cut off for our iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was bruised for our transgressions. Beloved, you have to ask, what does this mean for Messiah to suffer for your sins? It means a few things. It means he loves you in spite of your sin. It means he knew all the wrong he would do, and he loved you through it to keep you from it. And he loved you through it to keep you from it. Thousands of years in the past, and then many more before that, God had his eye of love and affection on his people. He knew every time you'd turn from him. He knew every time you would spurn his kindness and his tenderness, and yet he still suffered. He was cut off, but not for himself. It means that he bore the penalty Shame and guilt of our sin. He bore the penalty, the shame, and the guilt for our sin. Beloved, in Christ you are a new creature. If Messiah was cut off for you, your iniquity is atoned for, and everlasting righteousness has been credited to your account. Beloved, how many people do I meet who are paralyzed by the sins of their past, who are unwilling to let go of sin in the present, and many times I think it's because we don't realize how much the work of Christ did on our behalf. It's a strong covenant. 
an unbreakable covenant. He will keep his people. It means your sins are spread as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't bring them to mind. Neither should you. We tell people regularly the gospel is the best news in the world. Your sins are finished. That's what Jesus says. It is finished. Forget what lies behind. Press forward. And if the Lord doesn't bring it to your accounts, if he doesn't stir it up to his remembrance, beloved, should we not do the same for one another? Let that sweet promise fuel your joy of obedience today. This is incredible. I don't have time to tease this portion out today, but this passage portrays the active obedience of Christ. Portrays his active obedience of Christ alongside his passive obedience to die for sin. He fulfilled the works of the law on behalf of his people, and you are declared righteous in Christ. Not only did he get what you deserve, the wages of sin is death, but you got what he deserved, everlasting righteousness. And then finally, I wanted to give a big picture overview then. How does then Daniel's prophecy kind of work out with John and Revelation, and how, how should we understand these 70 weeks? I wanted to kind of just close with that big picture overview. We'll pray and we'll be done. We have I would suggest this incredible prophetic picture and a solid reason to trust the scriptures above everything else, including your feelings, worldly wisdom, worldly counsel. Here's how it fits together. With Daniel, we have this a type of prophetic passing of the baton. Daniel's prophesying for the nation of Israel before, that's an important time marker, he's prophesying before the first advent of Jesus and has this astounding messianic prophecy that launches Israel almost 500 years into the future until Messiah comes and his prophecies are fulfilled. John, the apostle, speaking to the newly reconstituted Israel, consisting of Jews and Gentiles in fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and the nations, now picks up that prophetic baton where Daniel and others left off, and now he speaks for the people of God who exist between the, between the first and second coming of Jesus. So Daniel was before, now John is speaking to those who are between the first and second comings of Jesus, of the Messiah, to encourage Encourage them to remain faithful, to stand firm, to endure suffering, to finish the race, and eventually we climactically take our place with all the redeemed of all time under both covenants with our one covenant head at the center where we collectively worship him forever and ever. And this pales any Super Bowl show halftime event. And is it any wonder then that John sees so many parallels to Daniel in his book of Revelation as he he sees the church, God's people, in exile, scattered abroad across the nations, awaiting our King and Savior. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I believe that picture, in my accounting, fits better the totality of Scripture. Soli Deo Gloria. Come, Lord, come quickly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension. And Father, your word is intricate and beautiful and timely and true. May we follow it, may it stir us to worship this morning as we partake of your supper wherein we await the second coming, for as often as we eat that bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns, and you will return, Father. So we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.